namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato harahato samma samputassa Homage to the Buddha, the blessed, noble, and fully self-enlightened one. So, <clears throat> there are some people who, uh, it's their first time encountering a, a Buddhist retreat. And so I thought I'd <clears throat> aim it somewhat to those people too. Uh, but to try and just put the seven factors of enlightenment into uh, just the greater uh, span of the Buddha's teachings, you know, to see where it fits in. But it's always nice to start with the Buddha himself. Because the Buddha, like any leader of any tradition, is both the exemplar but also the archetype. Um, the path that he discovered is common to all. And um, in that sense, he's a, uh, the Buddha remains a sort of archetype. So his life, the story of his life, uh, you will see is repeated just in your own. So, and the example, of course, is that he was able to break through this veil of delusion and, uh, lucky for us, was able to teach it. Which is a different quality, isn't it? In the... Uh, common story, he's a prince very rich and all that, but in reality, he was just the son of what we would call a very well-to-do family and uh, his father was a local head of, head of the tribe head of the, head of the clan the Sakya clan which was a group of people that lived just on the borders of what's now Nepal but they actually came under the jurisdiction of the king of Kosala a man called Pasanadi, and because of his connections there, he was sort of well known to that ruling caste, you see, which helped. Um, since he was in that caste, he would have lived a fairly comfortable life, unlike there were the lower castes who would do the hard labour. So he would have lived a fairly easy life compared to some of his people would have learned how to use all the uh, weapons of war, bow and arrow, things like that. Uh, would have had lots of discussions about religions and about the religion of the time, early form of what we now call Hinduism, which I think people refer to as Brahmanism. And um, he was basically, by his own tale anyway, even if you don't take all the proliferations, uh, had a fairly good childhood. He was all right. Seemingly married uh, a woman whom he fell in love with and was beautiful. And uh, was just chugging along. Then, uh, in his middle 20s, uh, again, in the mythology, he comes across a very sick person, a very old person, and a corpse. And... An ascetic sitting under a tree, 
Now, if you think back, some of you, to your middle 20s, uh, that's the time when uh, there's a sort of growing realisation that youth is over, that one has to take life just a little bit more seriously. Uh, One tends to get married, get a job, do things like that, take out a pensions policy. So the crisis that came upon him at that time, we would now call an identity crisis, uh, or, uh, shall we say more mystically, an existential crisis. I like that word, existential. Seeing somebody very old, and it's sort of grasping his imagination, the question was, Will I get like that? When he saw somebody who was very sick, is it possible that I might fall into such sickness? And remember, those are the days of, you know, well, we still have them, but uh, illnesses that were manifest, like leprosy. And when he saw the corpse, the question was, is this also my personal end? So when we think about those things, it uh, can raise a certain existential crisis. A purpose of living. Uh, But the ascetic sitting under a tree suggested that there might be a way out of the problem. These ascetics at the time uh, were saying things like, there is nibbana, there is a happiness. They did uh, certain exercises which... Uh, the Buddha would then put under the context of samatha, just creating beautiful inner states of mind, and would declare that these were much more lasting and that they would enter these states when they died. There were beliefs like that. There were materialists, of course, people who said that on death, that was the end of it. Uh, But uh, those questions would have been sort of in his mind somewhere. And uh, such was the dislocation of this very happy life and the fact that it would all end in this catastrophe of sickness, old age, decrepitude and senility. It was a shock. So in that sort of shock, in that sort of realisation, the mind sometimes seeks for desperately for some sort of answer and it must have grabbed his heart so much that uh, he was ready to leave his family ready to leave his young wife who had just given birth and we have this lovely picture of him peeking in to see his newborn child and the wife and then determining that in fact he really had to seek the answer to this question that was troubling his soul so he got on his horse Kantika and rode off to the river to the Enoma river with his attendant Chanda and as in all mythology the river once you cross it you can't go back crossing the Rubicon Caesar crossed the Rubicon he crossed the Rubicon took off his 
silk clothes, silk from Benares, cut off his hair, as the ascetics did, and said goodbye to his horse, who died of heartbreak. And his servant went away, and he began to live the ascetic life. Now, one of the insights that he'd had, which is pertinent to our situation, is that having had a great party, he woke up to see slobbering mouths, the stench of bad breath, and those sorts of things which we may be familiar with. And though that, ex- that experience of the other side of pleasure, the downside of pleasure, also undermined his belief that the sensual pleasures that his society could give him were actually going to heal this uh, rupture in his heart. Uh, our society is very indulgent, isn't it? I mean, all we have to do is press a button and pleasure comes our way, whether it's music or the television. You only have to walk to the fridge to find satisfaction. Things like that. It's The pleasure is sort of immediate to us. And in that sense, we contact the Buddha in, as a bodhisattva, as a as Siddhartha Gautama, that he had all these pleasures and there came a sense of vanity about it an emptiness. Even uh, he was supposed to have had sexy times. Even they became vain. And I'm reminded of Woody Allen, who said, just sex is an empty experience. But as empty experiences go, So now, having abandoned his, his family and his child, uh, abandoning thereby all the pleasures and joys that the ordinary life could give him, he seeks for a teacher who could uh, instruct him how to get out of this, uh, the pain of an existential crisis, the absurdity of being alive of being conscious and yet suffering. It's absurd, isn't it? We, we, we have this enormous consciousness, but unfortunately we're conscious of sickness, old age and death. We're conscious when we're depressed. We're conscious when we're anxious. So if you don't have a purpose for that, if there's no, if there's no reason for it, if you just end up re- recognizing that that's what life offers then you end up with an image which I think was well worked by the philosopher Albert Camus in his book Sisyphus. Now I can't remember the story of Sisyphus, why he ended up in this terrible hell, but his job was to roll a boulder up to the top of the hill, which only rolled down, he had to go and fetch it and roll it back up. That's life, isn't it? You get up in the morning, you go to work, and then you go to bed, and you get up in the morning, you go to work. You have to wash the pots, you eat, then you have to wash the pots. 
sort of a dreadful drudge about life, especially when it's meaningless, worse when it's meaningless, impossible, absurd. So I'm, I'm presuming that these were the sorts of thoughts that would have gone through his head because he was in a state of uh, despair. One doesn't leave one's family just for the kick of it. Now, the first teachers that he came across uh, taught him what he then later taught as the absorptions. When we do metta practice, when we do the goodwill practice, we're also doing one of those types of meditations. And the difference between the joys and bliss that one might experience through those practices and the joys and bliss that we uh, experience with a Danish pastry and Costa coffee is that it can be manufactured within us. It isn't dependent on something outside us. So just by engendering that thought, may all beings be happy, and putting the whole of our intention behind it, it creates within us a beautiful feeling, a beautiful state of mind. And the more you practice it, the more you can sustain it. And so you can get really blissed out and you don't need anything apart from, well, in the East, a pair of shorts and a top and a tree and a bowl to go around and get yourself a bit of food. Because when you sit like that, you're perfectly happy. Unfortunately, it also passes away. And although he was to attain these states to perfection, so much so that he was invited by his teacher to co-teach with him. Still, this ache in the heart as to the purpose of life just wasn't answered. There was still that absurdity. There was still the suffering, still the unsatisfactoriness. So then he tried this mortification exercise. Now, in all of ancient literature, even Socrates, but especially so in the East, it was well known that the cause of suffering was this desire. The desire to become, the desire for sensual pleasure, the desire for riches. It immediately put you into a conflict with life because you've got to manipulate life in order to get rich, be famous, be powerful. So the whole idea of, of desire was there within the understanding of the time and it was thought that the best thing to do was to destroy all desire so one opted out of society one didn't take part in the rich and the famous and the powerful and all that and you even you even brought to as still a point as possible any desire that was coming from the body so you lived a celibate life you only ate uh, you know rice, you didn't bother about whether it tasted nice or not, and you, you, you ended up, in his words, being very thin. <laughs> and because he was very thin, he had no strength, he wasn't going anywhere. And he spent such a long time getting thin. That's not the same as dieting, of course. Dieting is a modern invention. Dieting is about 
stopping eating so you can eat again, which is not quite the same. <laughs> so now, having got himself into this terrible dilemma of uh, a body that was starved, um, having come to the end of sensual pleasure, recognizing that, sure, he could go back to it, but it would just be an empty experience, wouldn't mean anything he could still practice these blissed out states, but he knew that they also arose and pass away. So he's pretty despairing. He'd entered stain. He must have been in that same despair as he was when he saw sickness, old age, and death. He'd followed the ascetic path, and it had got him nowhere. And so he left his companions and uh, was sitting, dejected by the roadside. When a woman, Sujata, came by with a with some rice pudding or rice cakes anyway I prefer to think of it as rice pudding and seeing this poor man and how awful he looked although in the story of course in the myths he looked like a god and she went and offered him this rice pudding which seems absurd <laughs> sitting there thin dreadfully thin and uh, no energy looking very sad dejected, despairing she in her kindness offered him some rice pudding now we all know the power of rice pudding (laughs) and with that little bit of energy he he it brought back something to mind which is crucial to our, our spiritual practice. If it wasn't for this memory, he wouldn't have made it. If it wasn't for this memory, we wouldn't be here now. It's a really crucial memory. He remembered watching his father doing a plowing ceremony as a child. And when he remembered, when he had that memory... And he thought of the constituents of that looking, of, that, of the way that a child looks. It inspired him. It so inspired him that he, he knew this was somehow uh, the last chance. And he went to sit under a tree, which we now call the Bodhi tree, the religious fig tree. It's a big tree. And he sat there with the determination that uh, he wouldn't move. He would either figure this one out or die come to that point luckily for us six hours into the practice he makes this great breakthrough so what was it that he remembered you see because as I say this is very crucial to our understanding of the practice now just think of a child I tend to think of them you know between something like five and eight nine When, you, when they see something that they haven't seen before, like a, a bug or something, their eyes fixate on it, don't they? They even stop blinking. The jaw drops. They look gormless. A kindly parent gives them a crack on the head and says, wake up, stop being gormless. Now, fixated, the eyes very still, 
not knowing what it is, completely receptive. The jaw relaxed, which means the intellect has stopped. There's no thought. That's Vipassana. That's exactly what we've been practicing. Just that. Just the ability to look at something, to receive it totally, not coming from any position of, I know what this is. Having no idea what it is, completely relaxed, without fear, driven by interest, a real driving interest of, what is this? No intellect, no thought. That's it, isn't it? That's what we've been trying to get to all day. That was his inspiration. He remembered that that was a particular way of looking which he had not come across before. Not been taught by his teachers. All his teachers taught him how to develop a state of mind. How to create a beautiful state of mind. Just like when I say to you, you know, to go out and walk around and abide quietly, develop a certain calmness, a stillness. So we can do that. But what it doesn't have is this investigation. It doesn't have this curiosity. So when it comes to our meditation, that's your really empowering factor. It's the desire to know. It's wanting to know, which is going to drive the meditation. And in order for that to be active, in its purest sense, the intellect has to stop. There has to be that direct connection with the object. Now, unlike the child, we've got all this baggage We've got the intellect. We've got all the knowledge that we've got. We've got all the, all the associations. We've got all the emotions that go with it. Now, when they start coming up, when they, as it were, come to the front of our consciousness, that's what the Buddha began to call the hindrances. They're obstacles. But they're only obstacles if we get lost in them. If they become something to observe something to watch, something to experience and come to understand them and how they're created and how they are undermined then they become our teachers so when we start with the sitting and we always start with this engendering the calmness engendering that that, uh, that quality of focus and then the interest coming in you see see and then shortly after that the dustbin lid comes off and all this horrible stuff starts coming up pain in the knee depression anxiety, guilt sorrow and so on and so forth a whole gamut of human misery why does that come up first? Why why can't peace and joy and happiness come up first? heaven's sake because that isn't turbulent. All these other conditionings are turbulent. They're just, they're just bouncing up and down, waiting to get a chance to box us on the nose. So now, when I sit here, you see, those qualities of curiosity, of calmness, 
the stillness, the focus, uh, the equanimity, not coming from a position, looking at specific qualities, the three characteristics, the impermanence, how we create suffering, and the sense of not-self, the sense of insubstantiality. All those we find deposited within that observation post. We start with the body, calming the body. We start with trying to feel gentle and happy inside. Only so that we can abstract ourselves from this psychophysical organism, which, as you know, is a favorite word of mine. And as we abstract ourselves from that psychophysical organism and find this position of the observer, all those qualities recede back into that observer. The observation itself is a calm observation. The observation itself is a focused observation. The observation itself includes the observation of these characteristics. And the observation has within it that quality of curiosity. And what we're interested in with these things that are manifesting, whether it's painful or pleasurable, is their quality of, tr of impermanence their quality of insubstantiality because in the end what is it they're just it's just energy isn't it when when you feel an emotion and you go into an emotion what is it you're experiencing is it something solid like a brick huh? it's not is it it's it's just feeling it's just something almost amorphous it's like water And just being able to see the qualities of what you're looking at and then to be able to catch the old reactions that you have, the learnt reactions of developing, indulging what, you, what we decide is pleasant and resisting, turning away from, with fear, from things that we see as unpleasant. Catching that mechanism within the mind, see? Where's that coming from? Is it coming from the pain in the knee, that mechanism of not wanting? Is it coming from the feeling of depression or anxiety? Is that what is that is that causing it? Or is it simply a mirror in the mind of the way the understanding has a relationship with what it's experiencing? Can an emotion experience itself? Does the knee know it hurts? Who knows it hurts? That knowing, you see, that knowing, having separated itself from the psychophysical organism, having separated itself from that, must be generating this relationship. That relationship of wanting, not wanting, it must come from this knowing, which is deluded. Now, what do we mean by deluded? See, the Buddha says we're deluded. We're all mad. The problem with delusion as opposed to 
an illusion, shall we say, or the problem, let's just say the problem of delusion, is that you don't know where the delusion is. If you knew where the delusion was, it'd be easy, wouldn't it? That'd be easy. You know, if somebody said, well, there's your delusion, you say, oh, well, get rid of it. Take the eye. The eye sometimes, if you, if you don't have good sight, it has what's called astigmatism. I know this, because I've got one. And having been to the uh, optician, putting on these new glasses, the left eye felt definitely uncomfortable. Although it felt uncomfortable, I could see perfectly well. I couldn't see why I should be feeling uncomfortable. When I went back to the optician, she said to me that the other optician had forgotten to put in this, uh, this stigmatism, which is like a wave in, in old glass, in the old glass where you get a wave and it distorts what you're looking at. So I got another pair of glasses and I was all right. But in terms of seeing, I couldn't tell the difference between the glasses which had this correction of the stigmatism and the one that didn't. I couldn't see that at all. So that's the way, that's the problem that we have. This intelligence is not looking in a correct way. It's not seeing things properly. And because it doesn't see things properly, it creates a wrong relationship. What is this wrong relationship? It's the belief that we're human beings. This is a big mistake. It's the belief that we're this body. Now you might say, well, of course I'm not this body. I know it dies. When the doctor gives you six weeks and you freak out, it's the freaking out that tells you how related you are to the body. <laughs> if you weren't the body, what the hell? You get rid of it. The fear of death, the fear of illness, the fear of sickness, old age. This is the measure of our understanding of what the body is. But worse than that, because this knowing does want to be happy. We all want to be happy. So having decided that it is a human being, it now has to seek this happiness as a human being. It has to create heaven in this place, at this time, now. How can it do that? Well, there's ice cream. <laughs> the sex, drugs and rock and roll. And you end up in the Buddha's primary position. See? Where the whole thing begins to crumble, begins to become an empty experience. It's meaningless. How many ice creams can you have? A lot. <laughs> That's what dieting's about. You give up for a few days and, and then you want another one. You crave it again. So, this seeking of happiness in the sensual world, yes, it's coming from the idea 
that this is where happiness is going to be. And the reason we seek happiness there is because we believe this is what we are. If you then begin to renounce that happiness, see, renunciation. So now renunciation is not the same as self-mortification. That's, that's on this presumption that the body is at fault. Renunciation is to give something up to see where your attachment is. So leaving those things behind and going through the pain of having to let go of those things, There's a movement of that, of that knowing, of that intelligence within us, which is, as it were, through the process of letting go, beginning to find some other position, some other position, some other relationship with the body. It doesn't expect the body to make it happy. So whether the body is in a good state or a bad state, the position of that intelligence remains steady. It doesn't get caught up in the body and its and its and its states. Recognizing that emotions are fleeting, they come and go. Which emotion are we? How are you going to define yourself? Happy one day, depressed the next? Recognizing that emotions are always in a state of change, whatever they are. See? Renouncing them. Not seeing, not seeing that happiness is going to be an emotional thing. So no matter whether the heart is in a state of, uh, in a good state or a bad state, there is within us this knowing which is able to, as it were, sit above it. Remain equanimous not caught up in those mental states. And then there's the mind with its thoughts and opinions. We define ourselves by what we believe. Huh? If you were to write down, if somebody says to you, who are you? I'm sure you would put down your, your ethical beliefs, your political beliefs, your religious beliefs. They're part of our identity, aren't they? Even the nationhood that we have, the culture that we have, it's all part of our identity. The jobs we have. That's why losing your job can be such a trauma. It's not, it's not, it's bad enough losing a wage, but it's worse losing the job. Because we define ourselves by what we do. That definition tells us about our relationship, the me, the I, this is what I am. See? Seeing that, being aware of that, pulling away from that, you see, we find this other identity which is not attached to anything which is phenomenal, anything which belongs to the world. So that process, the process of detaching, right, is the process of this liberating, 
That's what the Buddha discovered. He, if you look at his life, he's constantly liberating himself, pulling back, pulling back. So, our work, you see, is to, um, is to find these qualities, the seven factors, and to generate them in such a way that they don't just we're not just practicing when we sit, but we take it into our daily lives. Yeah. Let it affect the way that we relate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.